How many of you guys have a check engine light on in your car on the way to church here this morning? I see that hand, Stephen. If you have a check engine light on in your car, there's two ways to make it go away. One way to make that check engine light go away is you can fix the problem, right? You can hook up your OBD reader and get the error code and replace your O2 sensor or whatever it is that probably doesn't matter or something like that, right? That, that's one way to fix the problem. Or you can just shut off the warning indicator. You can override that error code. Maybe if you know what you're doing, you can pull out the fuse that powers your dash lights. Or you can get really high tech. I've actually seen this before. You just take a piece of electrical tape and put it on the dash. That way you don't see the light, right? That's one way to get rid of that check engine light. But if you think that turning off the warning light means your car is fixed, then you are sadly mistaken. The check engine light's actually a helpful warning, isn't it? It alerts us to something that's wrong down beneath the surface, something that's wrong with your engine. So the check engine light's a helpful thing. It's not a problem in and of itself. It's a useful signal that alerts us to the real problem. Now, did you know that your heart has a check engine light? It does. When there is sin, when there's a problem in our hearts, we experience a feeling of guilt. Guilt has been a part of the human condition since the fall of Adam. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree, they were instantly ashamed. They felt guilt. They knew that they were naked. They tried to cover themselves. They tried to put some tape on the dashboard to block out that blinking light that said, danger, danger, something is wrong. But though guilt is a result of the curse, guilt can actually be a grace. Guilt is a gift. When your heart is functioning as it should, when your conscience is functioning as it should, it's a gift of God to alert us to our need. Guilt is not God's punishment for sin. It's the warning of punishment that alerts us to our need for Christ. But there is a war on guilt in our society. Not an effort to resolve guilt, but an effort to destroy it. We see guilt as a symptom of low self-esteem. We see guilt as shackles from which we must break free. We don't like to feel bad about ourselves. And because of this, we seek to make excuses for our sin. Or we seek to redefine our sin. To minimize the seriousness of it. There are many today who even celebrate their sin. Protesting so loudly against the guilt that they take pride in that which should be seen as shameful. But refusing to acknowledge our guilt... And refusing to confess our sin is actually destructive and deadening to the human soul. Listen to this quote by Pastor John MacArthur in his book called The Vanishing Conscience. He writes this, Sin defies and deceives the human conscience and thereby hardens the human heart. A sin-hardened heart grows ever more susceptible to temptation, pride, and every kind of evil. Unconfessed sin, therefore, becomes a cycle that desensitizes and corrupts the conscience and drags people deeper and deeper into bondage. If we understand the purpose of guilt, that it's meant to bring conviction of sin and prompt us to run to Christ, then we will see guilt as a gracious gift from God. In chapter 42 of Genesis, what we witness is God activating the guilty conscience of Joseph's brothers. 
in order to prepare them for restoration with their long-lost brother Joseph and with himself. If you have been with us through our series in Genesis, you'll know that Joseph's brothers are violent and sinful men. And they are in desperate need of change. And in God's gracious providence, he is at work not only to preserve his people, to save their lives by bringing them to Egypt, to rescue them from the famine. He's also at work to purify his people, to make them who they must be if they will be in this covenant relationship with him. And in observing their experience, we can learn something about the value of guilt, the value of holy fear, the value of godly sorrow that leads to repentance. So in chapter 42, we find Joseph now fulfilling his new duties. He's been promoted by the Pharaoh. You remember he was sold as a slave, then he was later unjustly thrown into prison. And then through a remarkable turn of events that can only be explained by God's power, Joseph is promoted to be the second most powerful man in all the land of Egypt. Over 20 years earlier, he had left Canaan, but he never dreamed that he would be the second in command over all Egypt. And that in time of famine, his brothers, who had hated him and sold him, would actually come to buy grain from him. Little do they know that Joseph's divine dreams of his family bowing down to him are about to be fulfilled. But in order for the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams from years before about, remember, the sheaves bowing down to his sheaf and the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him, in order for the fulfillment of that dream to be a blessing, there needs to be restoration. There needs to be reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. And that's going to mean exposing their secret crime, their hidden shame of selling Joseph into slavery all those years ago. We see in verses 1 through 5 that God gives the grace of crisis to awaken guilt. God gives the grace of a crisis to awaken guilt. Look in verses 1 through 5. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. The external pressure of the famine... The famine that God had revealed to Pharaoh through a dream, that dream that Joseph had interpreted, that external pressure will serve to expose their sin. Joseph is in the palace in Egypt and has, by God's grace and the wisdom given to him, he's prepared well for the famine. Not only is he able to provide food for all of Pharaoh's kingdom, because they saved up during the seven years of plenty, but they actually have enough to sell to their neighbors, Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the family of Jacob is in need. The threat of starvation is staring them in the face. And Jacob asks his sons why they're standing around looking at each other. What are you standing around here for? What are you staring at? Go, fix this, do something, get us food. They need to act. The promises of God for this people to become a great nation, it hinges upon their survival. So you have to ask the question, why do they need a kick in the pants to go to Egypt and buy food? Why are they so hesitant? Well, it appears that the thought of going to Egypt is something that these ten brothers are actually avoiding. 
Time had not erased their shame. And the more time passed, the more they felt the burden of guilt. And the thought, the thought for them of retracing Joseph's steps in going down to Egypt, it brought back painful memories, memories that they would rather forget about. As if the mention of Egypt wasn't enough, Jacob won't send Benjamin with them. It's clear here that he still doesn't know exactly what happened to Joseph, but he knows the character of his sons. And he knew the tensions that originally gave rise to, to all the conflict that happened before. The sons of Leah were jealous of the sons of Rachel and the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, the concubines. There was all this drama in his family, and he feared that there might be another accident and that he might lose Benjamin too, as well as Joseph. And the brothers do not protest against Jacob's decision. Though they had no intentions of harming Benjamin, they knew that their father's suspicions were justified. This must have stung. It had to have stung to be reminded of their crime against Joseph. Both the adversity of the famine and the advice of their father means that the brothers must now go to Egypt. We as readers, however, we understand, don't we, that it's actually God who's leading them there. This is no random circumstance. God is not only providing for their survival, he's forcing them to come face to face with their brother and acknowledge their crime. God uses the grace of this crisis to awaken guilt and to activate their guilty conscience. But we see in verses 6 through 25, God also gives the grace of a conscience to awaken guilt. God sent this external pressure of a famine But now we see that there's added to that external pressure, there's also great internal pressure, the pressure of spiritual conviction over what they had done so many years before. We find them meeting their brother Joseph in verses 6 through 9. It says, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Moses tells us that as the brothers march along, Towards Egypt, they're actually part of a big parade of many different nations that are coming to Egypt to buy food. And they're unknowingly on a collision course with their long-lost brother. You have to wonder, I mean, they're not expecting to see Joseph, but you have to wonder, was Joseph perhaps expecting to see them? I wonder if he was watching for them. Maybe he was wondering, how's my family doing? Are they surviving this famine? Perhaps wondering if they would come to buy grain from him, that he would get a chance to see his family and find out how his father and his brother were doing. And then one day, while Joseph is overseeing the sale of food, his brothers arrive, and it says that they bowed before him. And verse 9 tells us this, that Joseph remembered something. He doesn't remember their sin against him. Not that he's forgotten it, but that's not the thing that's closest to his heart. That's not the thing that strikes him. When they bow before him, he remembers his dreams. That which God had told him over 20 years previous that his brothers and his parents, his whole family would one day bow before him. He remembers his dream and he recognizes the providence of God. They don't recognize him, but Joseph recognizes something. 
He recognizes that God is at work, that God has brought him to where he is now. Although his brothers have committed a horrible crime against him, Joseph now is beginning to understand the purpose in his suffering. It was so that he could rescue his his family from this famine. This realization that God is the one who's orchestrating all these things together, that is what will free him to forgive his brothers and to embrace them. Although Joseph is ready and willing to forgive, first he needs to know if they have changed. Have they treated Benjamin the same way that they once treated him? Can they be trusted to return with his whole family? If he reveals himself now, they may run far away and never return, fearing Joseph's retribution. Joseph knew that his dreams are partially fulfilled as they bow down to him, But this only strengthens his desire and his expectation for the complete fulfillment. He knows his whole family must come. So the reason that he is harsh with them is not because he wants vengeance. It's not because he's trying to get payback. The reason Joseph is harsh is because he sees the plan of God already starting to come into focus. And he knows he must proceed carefully because he longs to see all that God has promised come to fruition. So first, he tests them by interrogation. The first of several tests. In verse 9, it says, Joseph remembered the dreams that he had spoken of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we are your servants We are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it's as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Joseph accuses them four times in these verses of spying, seeking to see the nakedness of the land, meaning by that, trying to spy out its weaknesses, looking for vulnerabilities, perhaps a point where a foreign military power could come and topple Egypt. They were the top dog in that day, the most powerful nation in the region. Ironically, it was in part Joseph's spying on them years before that had made them hate him so much. Remember, he had come and he had reported on them to his father when they were taking care of their father's sheep. Now we see that Joseph accuses them of being spies. And four times he repeats this, attempting to rattle them, trying to intimidate them, to break them down to see how they would respond, to hopefully get some information about his family. And notice what they claim. They reply in verse 11 with truth. They say, we are not spies, but they also reply with some untruth as well. They say, we are honest men. Now, considering their past deception of Shechem, do you remember that a few chapters back? They lied to the people of the town of Shechem and said, you know what, if you will be circumcised, we'll sweep this whole issue with Dinah under the rug and we'll intermarry with you. And then when those men were sore from their surgery, they came and slaughtered all of them. Doesn't sound very honest, does it? Remember the immorality of Reuben. 
who slept with his father's concubine. Remember the mistreatment of Tamar by Judah, putting her off and, and, and failing to give her his son as was promised. Remember, not to mention their most famous crime of selling Joseph and tricking their father Jacob with his bloody coat. Does this look familiar to you, father? Does this belong to your son? We as the readers, it kind of causes our eyebrows to raise, doesn't it? Honest men? Really? Huh, okay. So they're telling the truth that they're not spies. They're innocent of that charge, but they are guilty of much else. And I think Joseph knows that. They claim that they are 12 brothers in verse 13, the sons of one man. From their perspective, this defense helped to show that they are not political mercenaries. I mean, who would risk your entire family being wiped out if you got caught? That doesn't sound like a very wise plan for 12 brothers to come and be spies. But from Joseph's perspective, this affirmation of their brotherhood would have been a stark difference from the fractured family he knew. One where they refused to acknowledge their relationship as brothers. They all took sides depending on whose mother they belonged to. All that jealousy and competition. Fractured family. But also in attempting to defend themselves, they actually offer Joseph some unsolicited information. Some information that he so desperately wanted to hear. That both Benjamin and his father were still alive. Although I think they'll soon come to regret offering that information because Joseph now continues with another test. He not only tests them by interrogation, he also tests them by incarceration. In verse 17, it says, and he put them all together in custody for three days. He said, I'm going to keep all of you here and send one of you back. And if you're telling me the truth, you'll bring your brother Benjamin. Otherwise, you'll all die. And he puts them in prison. They had thrown Joseph into a pit years earlier. Now he returns the favor. For three days they are held there, three days to reflect on their situation. They were being unfairly held captive in Egypt, which, by the way, is the same fate they had subjected their brother Joseph to all those years ago. But he does this not to punish them. I mean, if he wanted to punish them, he could have done a lot more. They deserve far worse than just three days. That's a slap on the wrist compared to their heinous crimes. He does this to provoke their conscience, to make them think, and to keep them in fear so that they took his, his threat seriously, that I think you're spies, and if you don't come clean, you will not live. But then he changes plans in verses 18 through 20. Notice what happens next. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so, Moses tells us. Just like they had changed plans years earlier when Joseph was in the pit, they decided rather than killing him, they'll sell him. Joseph also changes plans. He proposes keeping one and sending the rest home instead of keeping all and only sending one. So he wanted to quickly send them on their way. I think Joseph knew that his family's starving. They need food. And they're going to need a lot more food than only one man can carry. So we see Joseph's mercy and his care for his family here. But this would also serve to lessen the blow of the news to his father. I mean, he knew his father would take the news hard if nine of his sons were in custody in Egypt. To hear that one was kept would be hard enough. 
And Joseph also knew it was going to be a tough sell to convince his father, Jacob, to send Benjamin all the way to Egypt. So perhaps nine voices in concert together would have a better chance of convincing him to do this. But as Joseph proposes this new arrangement, notice what he says. He makes a statement that if you understand the context, it would have startled them. I mean, think about it. Here's this, you know, clean-shaven Egyptian man, you know, Zaphonoth Paneah, dressed in these Egyptian clothes in a foreign court, and he says to them in verse 18, I fear God. What a surprising claim from a pagan ruler. And Joseph's statement would have begged the question, I fear God. Do you? Do you? wonder how that statement landed on these men. Joseph knew that they feared him. They were aware of his power as the second in command in all of Egypt. But that kind of fear, Joseph knew, that kind of fear, simply the fear of consequences, it can never change the heart, can it? No, it can't. That kind of fear can never change the heart. But to fear the holy God over all creation... To fear the Lord of heaven and earth. That kind of fear will transform you. So his statement is meant to provoke their conscience. And to cause them to consider not just their situation with Pharaoh's right hand man. But to consider their standing before a holy God. I fear God. By implication, do you. And at this point, the culmination of all that has happened brings these men to the breaking point. Notice their confession in verse 21. And they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. Notice they're not calling him spitefully that dreamer anymore or Jacob's son. They call him our brother. We are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us. And we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you would not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Through the pressure of the famine, the trip to Egypt, the interrogation of this ruler, their time in prison, and now that they've been given this assignment that they know is nearly impossible, they've become convinced that God is punishing them. They are convinced, their conscience is is wounding them, that this is more than bad luck. This is divine justice. They are reaping what they have sown. The distressed cries of Joseph in the pit had not moved them. And now that same distress is being brought down upon their heads. They know they deserve the consequences of their sin. Guilt leads to fear. And this fear leads to regret. And this regret produces sorrow. Each step is bringing them closer and closer to true repentance and restoration with their brother and with their God. But all the while they are saying this, they're having this conversation in Hebrew, but Joseph can understand every word that they are saying. Look how he responds emotionally to their confession in verse 23. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. He wept. Although Joseph was ready and eager to forgive, his pain is real. I think sometimes we wrongly think that to forgive someone means that we pretend it doesn't hurt us. That's absolutely the opposite of the truth. True forgiveness, genuine forgiveness, real forgiveness does not deny or minimize the pain that is felt. 
it doesn't claim that there's never been any wounding. Joseph weeps as he hears his brother's recollection of their sin and their confession of their guilt. It's too much for him to bear. So he has to slip away and to cry in private. What he sees in them is promising, but there's still more testing that needs to happen. And so Joseph returns to them. We see this in verse 24. He turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. This final test that Joseph submits them to is the test of financial opportunity. He had just heard that Reuben was not the one who is the ringleader. Typically, the oldest brother is the one who's kind of in charge of everything, right? But Reuben says, it's not me. It's not my fault as he's talking to his brothers. If you would have listened to me, we would have never been in this situation. So what's likely is that Simeon, who is the next oldest in line, was probably the ringleader. We know that he was a ruthless fellow. He was the one who had led the brutal charge against Shechem. So Joseph keeps Simeon instead of Reuben. And keeps him in prison and sends the rest on their way. The selection of Simeon likely would have struck these brothers. They had no idea that Joseph knew who they were. They had no idea that Joseph knew what they had done. They had no idea that this was Joseph and that he knew the birth order. I mean, consider this. Simeon was the second son of Leah. And Joseph keeps him and calls for the second son of Rachel in exchange for his freedom. And even trade. And even trade. Joseph cares for his family. He sends them back home with food. But notice that he places their money in their sacks. He doesn't want payment from them. He doesn't need their money. But more than this, this will prove to be a test. Here's the test. Will they gladly keep this money in exchange for Simeon? Will they just leave him to rot in prison? As they had earlier sold Joseph for a price. Remember, for 20 pieces of silver, they had gladly sent Joseph off to be a slave. Likely, this was even more money. They could keep it. All they were down is one more brother. This would be another test for them. We see that this test strikes deeply. In verses 27 through 28, we see fear and sorrow on the road. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? What is this that God had done to us? Guilt and fear in the palace is followed by fear and sorrow on the road. Now they are more convinced than ever that God is against them. Ironically, because of their guilt, all they can see is danger in what's really a blessing. God is providing for them and about to rescue them. Joseph is showing grace and mercy, but they are crushed under the weight of conviction. And things don't get any better once they arrive at home. Fear and sorrow continues in verse 29. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened. They leave out a few of the details conveniently. But notice what happens. In verse 35, it says, As they emptied their sacks... Behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. It wasn't just one. It was all of them. 
And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. They were afraid. And notice how Jacob responds, verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Jacob says, If I lose Benjamin, that will be the end of me. That will be the end of me. Jacob cries out in despair. He holds them responsible not only for the loss of Joseph, but also now for the loss of Simeon. There's no way he's sending Benjamin, even though Reuben makes a rash vow to offer the lives of his sons, his two sons, in their place if he is lost. Jacob blows off Reuben's passionate plea. But Reuben's words do show us something, don't they? They show us something, that these brothers, get this, these brothers are beginning to change. They're beginning to change. Before, they had sacrificed one of their brothers for money. Now they are willing to suffer great personal loss for the sake of a brother. As time has passed, God was working on their hearts, awakening guilt, softening them, and preparing them to be restored and to be rescued. And that's where this chapter ends. It ends with great tension. Joseph is requiring that Benjamin come to Egypt. But Jacob says, no way. He is refusing Joseph is seeking to bless his brothers and rescue them, but they are fearing divine judgment. But God is going to use this tension. God uses this conflict. God will use this experience. Each aspect of their experience is meant to strip away the layers. It's meant to peel back the calluses on their hearts. It all serves to confront them with their sin. This is the check engine light telling them something's wrong. And you have to deal with it. You have to deal with it. God will use all of this to draw them to repentance and restoration with God and with their brother. You know, the pressures that we face in life, like the pressures these brothers face, the pressures that you and I face, are often tools in God's hand to expose sin and to sensitize us to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this morning, are you sensitive to God's purifying work in your heart? Or do you run from that? Do you suppress those feelings of guilt, those feelings of shame, those feelings of conviction? Hebrews 12, 5 says this, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. Later, the author of Hebrews says, later in this chapter, that for the moment, all discipline seems painful. It seems painful rather than pleasant. We can say amen to that, can't we? The discipline of God, when he convicts us of our sin, it's painful. But the author of Hebrews continues, but later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Like Joseph's brothers, 
we too experience not just external pressure that God graciously brings into our life, but we experience the internal pressure from our conscience. The pricking of our conscience is a gracious gift of God that ought to produce guilt and holy fear and godly sorrow over sin. Listen to what Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He writes that godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. You know, we all feel bad from time to time about our sin. But there's a kind of grief that is worldly. The kind of grief that just hates getting caught. The kind of grief that's just embarrassed. The kind of grief that just doesn't like the consequences. But there is a godly kind of grief. A godly sorrow that recognizes the horror of what sin really is. That understands the tragedy it is to sin against the holiness of God. That truly fears the righteous justice and judgment of God. And says, woe is me for I am a man who is undone. And Paul says that kind of grief, that kind of broken and contrite heart, that's what leads to salvation without regret. And that's God's grace to us. That's really what this is all about. You see, this is not just about inner feelings. This is about your eternal destiny. If you do not have and have never had godly grief, if you've never been broken over your sin. If you've never come to that place like King David where you're on your face, on your knees, saying against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, if you've never experienced that, then you will not experience God's healing, comforting grace and his salvation. It is only through the confession and repentance of sin that God extends his grace. That's the expression of faith that saves The kind of belief in the gospel that God wants is the kind of belief that turns away from our rebellion and our wickedness and turns to God in humility and says, I need your forgiveness, and if I don't get it, I'll die. This isn't just about your self-esteem. This isn't just about feeling better. This is about life and death. Repentance is that serious. Consider for a moment the parallel between Joseph's brothers and us, the one that they had sinned against, Joseph, is the one who had the power to judge them, the one who had the power to snuff out their life, which means that he is the one from whom they needed mercy. Only the patience and mercy and faith of Joseph stood between them and death. You have to ask, why did Joseph not order execution for them as soon as he saw them? It's because of a plan and a promise, specifically God's plan and God's promise. God knew, or Joseph, rather, Joseph knew and believed that God meant to raise up a great nation through Abraham, Isaac, and their father Jacob, and that their descendants were destined to be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, and that they were meant to bring blessing to the whole world. And Joseph was more committed to God's plan of redemption than to his own selfish sense of satisfaction and getting revenge. It's because of his commitment to God's plan that he showed them mercy. Consider our condition. We too, today, stand guilty. We've committed crimes worthy of death against the one, get this, against the one who has the right and the power to act as judge, jury, and executioner, which means we need his mercy. 
And that's our only hope. Why does God not pour out his wrath? Why has God not snuffed out our lives because of our sin against him? Because of our disobedience, because of our idolatry, because of our lust and our pride and our selfishness and our greed and our critical spirit towards others, because of our stealing and our lying. Why has God spared our lives? Why doesn't he pour out his wrath instantly? He has every right to. It's because of a plan and a promise. God's plan was to call out for himself a people for his name who would be a trophy of of his glorious grace, to call out a choir who would sing of his mercy, to secure for himself a family through adoption, children who would love and enjoy him as a father, to secure for himself a purified bride who would rejoice in the love of his son, to cleanse and build for himself a temple of living stones who would be filled with his spirit. This is what God is doing, and that's why he delights to show mercy to sinners like you and me. That's why he doesn't snuff out our lives the moment that we transgress his holy, perfect law. But for us to experience this amazing grace requires an admission of our guilt. It requires the confession of our sin. So let me ask you, do you feel this morning the weight of your guilt? Some of you have never come to that place, perhaps. That place of confession where you've acknowledged your guilt before God. Will you confess today and ask for his mercy? Or will you protest and declare your innocence? Do not foolishly think that you can stand before the righteous judge. Hebrews chapter 3 says, As the Holy Spirit says, quoting from the book of Psalms, Today, if you hear his voice, and I'm saying this to some of you, This morning, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as on the day of testing in the wilderness. As I swore in my wrath, they, the ones who harden their hearts, shall not enter my rest. The author of Hebrews interprets this for us and applies it to our hearts. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't harden your heart today. If that check engine light is blinking and going off, it needs your attention Just as Joseph saw and knew his brothers and knew what they had done, so now today, God sees you. He knows. His holy gaze pierces the sinful soul of man and discerns the innermost thoughts of our being. There is no hiding from God. You can trick me, you can trick your family, trick your neighbors, your friends, but there is no defense, there is no excuse when you stand before a holy judge who sees right through you. But if we will confess our sin, here's the good news, and cast ourselves on his mercy, he will forgive. And this is the only way that we can be set free from our guilt. This is the only way we can find relief from the conviction and the shame and the weight and the burden that we feel. This is the only way to escape death and eternal condemnation. Psalm 32, verse 3, David writes, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. 
For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But David writes, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Just as Joseph sought to be reconciled with his brothers and and was full of mercy and love and compassion for them, so Jesus today is full of mercy for sinners. He desires to redeem and to restore. His offer of grace and mercy is extended to all. If you will repent of your sin and confess your guilt, God promises you forgiveness. John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you want to experience God's grace this morning? Do you need some help? He's the only one who can deal with that flashing signal that perhaps is going off in your heart right now. You must accept your guilt today. Don't blame others. Don't make excuses. Don't try to suppress the conviction of the Holy Spirit and quench him if he is speaking to you today. Instead, own it, embrace it, and bring your guilt and your sin to Christ. Only he can provide the forgiveness you need, the relief and the comfort and the freedom. And it comes through his work on the cross where he suffered and bled and died on our behalf. So weep over your sin today. Weep over your sin. Be broken and look to Christ that he might restore you and replace your sorrow with joy that is incomparable. Have you experienced this grace? Many of you in this room have. Many of you here today know the sting of the guilty conscience, but you also know the comfort of God's spirit as he applies the gospel to our hearts. If you've experienced this grace, you can sing like the old hymn writer John Newton, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And, what's the next part? "'And grace my fears relieved.'" If that's you today, then raise your voice in worship to the God of grace, the one who convicts us of sin so that he might forgive us, the one who wounds us that he might heal us, the one who has shed his blood for our souls. God in heaven, as we consider our standing before you, we confess that we are guilty. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Lord, we know that the wages for our sin is death. And there's nothing we can do in our own power to deal with our sin, to make up for it, to atone for it, to somehow cleanse ourselves. We need your grace. We need your forgiveness and your mercy. And God, we know that those who are proud, you oppose, but you give grace to the humble. We know a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise, that you delight to forgive and restore those who come to you and humbly confess their sin. I pray, God, if there's people in this room this morning who have never confessed their sin and received the promise of forgiveness through the gospel, they've never trusted in Jesus and his death and resurrection, I pray that today they would come clean before you, not before me, not before other people in this church. I pray that today they would stand before you and that they would lay down their defenses, their excuses, They would stop hiding. 
that they would confess their sin and receive your mercy. Lord, we know you delight to save sinners. You long to show this kind of love and grace to those that you've made in your image. You delight to adopt us into your family and make us new and make us whole. Lord, many of us have experienced this gracious gift. I pray that you would help us today to wonder and marvel that you would show such mercy to undeserving sinners. Give us always a tender heart, that we would continue walking in repentance, that we would never allow ourselves to get over it and become hardened and to tolerate small sins in our lives or big sins in our lives. I pray that if there are people today who are hiding and concealing secret sin, that they would bring it to the light, that they would stop suppressing the conviction of the Spirit. God, purify us as a people. We need revival. We need to be made holy. We need you to do a work in us and prune us and discipline us. We know it's painful, but we know it's valuable, and it brings a great harvest of righteousness that brings you glory, and that's what we want. So we pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.